Welcome to Star Drifter, the science fiction patio book series written and read by David Collins Rivera. Today's story, All He Surveys, Volume 1, Chapter 17. Gravitin alarm, gravitin alarm, then two more, and all four cones had warship identifiers. On the heels of these came another twelve that were smaller, nearly on top of each other. It wasn't our old friend the assassin ship, but four others with military profiles, along with a gaggle of tender ships and support vessels, and not a single transponder sig between them. They dropped right in our laps early enough to be a surprise and actively hiding their identities. The apparent threat that amounted to was what had tripped the preset flags and caused my darts to fire. Already, Paziana's forward laser was flicking from one ship to another and then back again in stuttering flashes, feeding the streaking missiles with constant targeting information. This was nothing I'd been expecting. But I had sims for every conceivable situation, including a whole library for ambush-style attacks. In less time than it would take to form the statement in my mind, let alone speak it aloud, Gunnery had registered the change in the S2, analyzed all the particulars, ran a comparison search through installed archives against a wide number of criteria until it found as close a match as possible... Then it installed the appropriate scenario and updated it with current data. Instantly, the simulation told the ship to fire, using my authorization to do so. My missiles flew off before any of the support craft had arrived, even though they did so just seconds later. On the fly, the sim determined that the battleships were a greater threat than these others, but harder to damage nearly impossible with civvy ordnance at this close range, so their initial courses were modified. The tracking laser changed its dance to the newest vessels, since some of these were of the civilian design and therefore more vulnerable to civilian weapons. Of course, the big ones could provide point defense for the entire squad, but it was better than doing nothing. The intraship comm channels came alive, with everyone talking over everyone else in low-speak, Ingtech, and Seishan. My translation tools couldn't sort it all out. I turned that mess down with a sub-vocalized order, then watched how my live scenarios played out. The cluster of ships were sitting a mere 200 kilometers away from us. All this happened in the seconds it took to get back to my seat. The command came over a general channel to prepare for star jump. But then, just like that, the newcomers' transponders popped up on screen. Though civvy ships and boats couldn't normally turn these off without the sort of surgery that Josefina had had to perform, military combat ships and their modified support vessels had that ability. Continually shouting your location and identity to the enemy could be bad for your health. The list of ships was now scrolling across my eye view. 
For the S2, I was using some excellent hollow displays installed in the Snapdragon suite, but had ancillary info piping to my retinals directly. All the new ships bore low-speak names I'd have had to practice to pronounce, but they also had something else in common. They were flagged as being part of the Kriaz Defense Services, a squadron belonging to a private company owned by the Kajit family. This might have warranted a breath of relief, but I decided to hold on to it for a bit longer. It was a matter of seconds before my missiles would arrive, wherein a justified, preemptive attack would become an unprovoked one. These ships could have destroyed us immediately. They hadn't done so, which meant they hadn't wanted to. I vectored the darts off, then throttled them down into a pattern of wide arcs. They moved in crazy curls from the squad, looping away before taking up randomized holding patterns. They had fuel enough for this, and more. These were pretty standard defensive rockets, though they had an impressive delta-v for what they were. To outside observers, it would have appeared as if I was moving the weapons away from friendly forces, likely in preparation of ordering them to self-destruct. Well, that was certainly one possibility. A call from outside the ship came over restricted comms, a channel which was not normally piped to gunnery. The command codes I'd been given applied to other areas as well. It started off in Ingtech, then switched over to low-speak. My translator program handled it well enough this time when I muted the other channels. Paziana, this is the gunship Kazanaster, lead vessel of the Black Starling Squadron of Kriaz Defense, in service to the Kajit household. Belay your jump sequence. Hold your fire. We are here, according to prearranged plans, to take your passengers aboard and transfer them to a protected location. Is this the commanding officer? asked our captain. There was a bit of a pause, then a gruff, quick voice came on and said, This is Grand Admiral Liku Omatsu. I am leading the rescue of our beloved Countess and her fine children. Please inform them that they are now safe. Captain Giori replied to the Grand Admiral in grateful tones, happy that friendlies had arrived. He apologized for the weapons fire, explaining quickly that it had just been a precaution. The Grand Admiral observed that it was understandable, considering the circumstances. Those circumstances were as yet unclear, at least to me, so I held the darts in their pattern and just listened. The term Grand Admiral for Liku Amatsu was generous to the point of effusiveness. I'd profiled the Kajit security and civilian spaceborne assets quite some time before. His command consisted of the Kriaz Defense Force and a small number of ground troops. Nineteen actual combat vessels. Hu Fi Chuvaj, a massive carrier-slash-gunship hybrid, currently in dry dock getting upgrades. Four heavy coasters and 16 light coasters, some of which constituted what they called the Black Starling Squadron. The Kriaz Force consisted of all the vessels, including the Civi Tenders, 
while the Black Starlings seemed to be a subset of military-only ships, especially the big carrier and its attending vessels, or something. It was a little unclear. Additionally, the Cogets owned 60-odd commercial cargo ships outright and had investments in hundreds more scattered throughout space. Omatsu was ostensibly in charge of them all on behalf of the family. Commercial vessels were obliged to follow international laws and route management authority guidelines at all times, regardless of the policies and orders of their owners. I could imagine circumstances where that might not happen, though. The four that had dropped in on us were showing BSS addendums to their identifier SIGs. One heavy coaster and three lights. Black Starling Squadron was supposed to be on permanent deployment above the planet Yamak in Sayaku Prime star system as part of a joint military defense force. Yamak was the homeworld of the Kajit line, though it was shared by two other noble families in combined stewardship. Grand Admiral Omatsu must have come directly from the planet then. Aside from those obsequious fawnings, I didn't know Paziana's captain at all, and didn't know if he would tell me what I needed to hear or only wanted to hear. Instead, I called Glau on his personal comm. He'd been watching all this, of course, from the common room, where he hung out during most waking hours, and he looked quite alert in a pop-up window in front of my eyes. "'What's this Omatsu like?' I asked. "'Well... A decent leader, I suppose. Something of a bureaucrat, as all admirals are. He gained his position through family connections, but that's typical. I haven't heard of any scandals. Does he go out on many missions in the field? I wouldn't know. It seems unusual, but these are unusual times. Yeah... I tapped a corner of the gunnery workstation in nervous calculation, weighing it, watching the four fighting ships via Paziana's light-amp optical feeds. The coasters were in an equilateral square formation, five clicks apart from each other, just sitting there. The outside comm line was now filled with chatter from lesser officers on both sides, making arrangements for the safe return of our honored fugitives. One of the ships was preparing to send out a small shuttle, and Paziana's technicians were prepping an airlock to receive it. The shieldman saw my agitation. You think something is wrong? This isn't the escort we were expecting. I guess we're supposed to just ignore that? Ships were to be dispatched from Bundinian Station, the big rim stay on the edge of... Ah, what's that blue giant... Taviel, he provided. Right. That's what, 15, 16 light years away? Yamek is over 30 from this location. So his stops and refuels had to be quick. He could make it on time if he flew like the devil, couldn't he? Except that he's not on time. He's early. Heck, just climbing out of the Sayaku Prime gravity well would have taken four days. Glau's prodigious eyebrows closed in, and he began to look very concerned. This squadron could not have left from Yamak. Where, then? Someplace closer. 
These ships and Omatsu were already away from their duty stations before we left Hifa. When word came through about this handoff, they hightailed it here from wherever they were hanging out. Something smells off. Famo, this is a thing you will want to be right about. Questioning the integrity of such a man would have consequences. As many as handing the Kamatosa and her kids over to a traitor? If I'm right, they'll open fire on us as soon as the shuttle is clear. There can't be any witnesses. Then why don't they attack right now and be done with it? There have been a lot of screw-ups so far. Serious ones. In Lady Trisal's place, what sort of orders would you give with so much on the line? He was looking as grim as I felt, having come to the same conclusion. I would order the Komatosa and her children to be brought back alive, so I could oversee the executions personally. This to ensure it was finally done correctly. I nodded, then said, We have to delay the transfer until we're sure. To what end? Escape? As soon as they see we are making ready to leave, they will strike. Indeed, they can cripple us any time they choose. That would be an unprovoked attack upon another family's ship when they can't be sure of any gain or advantage from the act, I reasoned. Plus, combat damage could easily include passengers. If we're right about this, they won't go so far until they're pushed to it. Maybe they came early to get away early before the real escort arrives. Assuming so, then some of the Kajit military forces are still loyal. Omatsu wants the family. If he gets them, he can destroy us and leave, letting the blame fall on whoever it is that's supposed to be coming. If we drag our heels long enough, though, the help he's racing against might arrive before that happens. Maybe, if, might, these are words I don't trust. Give me a reasoned, alternate interpretation of what we're seeing right now, I pleaded, but he had nothing. Okay, then, we can't get away and we can't beat them in a fight. How do we defend the Kajits? Omatsu can send in troops with powered armor, and probably will. We can't let them board this ship. Can you destroy a shuttle? Yeah, even an armored transport, I think. But they wouldn't stand by after that, regardless of any orders the Grand Admiral might have been given by Lady Trasal or her cronies. If we attack, these ships will respond in kind. No military commander would do any less. Then we play a game of Reno for a few hours, and see what happens. My translator program automatically brought up a meaning for this low-speak word. It had no English equivalent, though its root language of English apparently did. Ringo Livio. That didn't mean much to me in specific, but the gist was clear enough. We better clue in the captain, I said. got away with acting confused at first. Then we went for the incompetence angle. 
After 90 minutes of continual vector alignment errors, they started getting annoyed. But annoyed was something we could live with. After two and a half hours, they were finally suspicious. And that was when the danger started to mount. We were right where they wanted us, yet maddeningly out of reach. Star jumping away was a continual temptation, one we resisted, since it would force the Grand Admiral's hand. We didn't attack their shuttles for the same reason. My darts were still out there, and they still had plenty of fuel, though now their holding pattern was nearly 2,000 kilometers out. They were just puttering along, and would have been but small specks of little importance on medium-range scanners. The other ships didn't mention them, and neither did we. They couldn't dock a shuttle if our maneuvering thrusters kept popping on and off. We rolled to one side and then another. We went back and forth. Then it was pitch and yaw this way and that. Sidling up to us when we were pulling that kind of crap was a death sentence for any small craft that tried it. Possibly for us too, but we had more to lose if they docked, and therefore more reason to take risks. They couldn't put a covert team aboard for the same reason. Assuming they even had a stealth shuttle available, I was watching for telltales. Regardless of this, one of the shuttles buzzing around us like flies had a cowgirl at the stick, and she almost killed herself and her passengers when she dashed in to make a quick link-up. She came at us just as we swung our stern diagonally, which would have caused a horrid collision if she hadn't been twitchy enough to leap the small vessel clear. The squadron poured invective on us for that, but it also issued an angry rebuke and recall order of the shuttle on another channel. I sat in gunnery listening to all this and frankly wished I'd had some popcorn. How they howled! First one captain, then another. Then all four ordered and threatened. Finally, the Grand Admiral got back on the line, blustering and cursing. This ate up another hour. Omatsu, along with these four ships, had been doing something unknown when his new secret pal Piani issued him some shifty marching orders. And now he was counting the minutes, just like we were. He'd planned on a quick in-and-out before anyone who might object could arrive, and that implied he knew when it was supposed to happen. Would the squad blow us apart and jump away when the clock ran out? Would the group from Bundinian Station arrive on time? Maybe they'd show up early, or late, or weren't even coming. Maybe I was just imagining things. That had to be a possibility. The way it felt, the way it looked. No. This was some shady behavior. I'd seen a lot of it lately, and this was real. The Grand Admiral was an enemy. I could have been wrong about some details, but not about that. The sole doubt I harbored over the situation was whether or not we'd survive it. Sure, I'd miscalculated. Omatsu or any other key figure in the family services turning traitor had never figured into my plans. The good lady was well prepared with puppet strings running like webs through this entire section of the Empire. Only a fleet foot had allowed us to stay alive up until now, 
but we were boxed in, losing and running out the clock. Doubts are fine if you can do something about them. Otherwise, they're just so much noise, and space was quite noisy at the moment. I shook my head and muted all audio feeds. I needed a minute. Paziana's command personnel had not been an easy sell. As the ranking Vernay's nobleman aboard a family-owned ship, my word wasn't exactly law, but at least the captain took my calls. I used Elmond's name liberally, as well as the Comatosas, figuring it couldn't hurt. His first officer blustered more than he did, but they worked as a team, so when one of them spoke, I tended to hear it in stereo. A Black Starling shuttle had already launched when Captain Giori finally agreed to go along with us on this, first getting my assurance, on the record, for which he was just so, so sorry to ask, that it was an owner decision. From his point of view, this was a ridiculously unprofessional prank, the kind that could get a commercial officer's license pulled if he didn't have noble connections. I promised into his recorder that he did. He began to have a different view of the situation when threats of deadly force came in. Why not let the Comatosa talk to them? The first off asked, quite alarmed at the dangerous turn this had suddenly taken. He was a thin, dark, hard-faced guy in his middle years who gave the impression of having experienced more than his share of noble drama during a long career of loyal service. If we let them see or hear her... I replied, Glout took at my side for moral support, and glowering in a way that added weight to my argument. They can later claim she appeared to be coerced, and that they'd had no choice but to take radical steps. They could then blow us up and say we did it ourselves, or give out any other cover story. Right now, they don't know for sure that she's even aboard. That's a piece of information the Grand Admiral doesn't dare leave here without, whether we're scattered into pieces or not. He's thrown in with Lady Tressal, Glau added with finality. Failure to secure or kill the Kajit family will divest him of her protection and favor. He'd be alone and soon after quite dead. He may have like-minded toadies on those ships, but most will likely be following the rightful orders, as they see them, of their commanding officers. So we just keep dancing, I added with finality, and that's what we did. Puff up, puff down. Puff forward, puff back. Twist, rock, wobble. Watching for patterns and then matching our movements in a shuttle was for naught when these changes were all done by eye and at the whim and will of helm control personnel. If Omatsu's people had a tactical operations team on hand, one that was really good, we might not have seen them coming, even while expressly looking. But we were never boarded, so either our goofing around with maneuvering thrusters had prevented attack ops infiltration, or, what I considered far more likely, they hadn't brought such a team of specialists with them. Piani's illicit order, assuming it was real, would have been for haste. If TAC Ops hadn't been immediately available, and if he'd come here from somewhere other than Yamek, the Grand Admiral would have had to launch the operation without them. 
It seemed like he'd been counting on us turning over our charges and then dying, and had been unprepared for anything else. So much for promotion through family connections. When I got back to monitoring channels, I kept the exterior military bands down since they were full of caustic language and threats. The squadrons started demanding proof that the Countess and her family were aboard, but radio silence was now the rule, so it just went on. A bit after this, I noticed a certain low-frequency energy spike coming and going over one particular wide-spectrum sensor along starboard. It was minor, inconsistent, and hard to fathom at first. I searched through my database of odd gunnery scenarios and references, culled from many years of publicly available forum chatter and the detritus of gunnery-centered social sites, and found a few references to anomalous spikes that appeared similar. The peanut gallery consensus was that these were caused by pinpoint-focused EMF emissions, likely an unknown targeting system of some kind and universally considered military in origin. These accounts were anecdotal only, but they fit the current S2. It was a mystery, though. If this was a targeting system, then why focus on one of, literally, thousands of tiny sensors embedded into the hull? I called up a detailed map of the ship's exterior and saw what else was out there. And sure enough, it wasn't the sensor they were after, but Attitude Thruster 17 next to it. If they could get a lock on that, they could slave something like a kinetic point defense weapon to take out just that nozzle. This would make our bob and weave game harder, and it would be more likely they could put their people aboard, especially if the nozzle strike was coordinated with a shuttle nearby. A quick sim showed me that without AT-17, it was indeed all over. Bang! The nozzle goes, then one or more of the hovering boats zooms in before we can compensate. Assuming the targeting system was point-to-point -point like a laser, then a quick general sensor replay and analysis showed that only one of the ships, a particular light coaster, had been dead on to that thruster at all times, making it the likely source. None of the others had projected anything like the energy spike, so they either didn't have this exotic system installed, or didn't have the personnel to use it. Either way, I called up Helm Control and described what I was seeing. Thereafter, Paziana included graceful pirouettes alongside her other dance steps, and the energy spike obligingly dropped off. Soon after, the anger started to peak. I didn't know Omatsu at all, but I couldn't imagine he was happy about having such a binary choice of outcomes. His need to please Piani Trasal on every detail, that is, bring him back alive, versus his need to avoid complete failure. Given those two options, I knew which I would choose. We were buying time, but it was coming at the cost of forcing his hand. The four warships began making changes to their relative positions, both in reference to each other and to us. This was a prelude to action, and as one, all the shuttles turned back to their various ships. 
Our dance was of no matter anymore. Predictably, Gunnery lit up with warnings and details about a round dozen targeting locks that Paziana was suddenly enjoying. But then there were new Graviton warnings atop of these. Two tiny ships dropped in on this wonderful scene with broadcasting transponders, offering names, affiliations, and registration numbers. Military-class reconnoiter vessels of a type I didn't know. Now, that wasn't too surprising, since my own ship ID library for the Empire was a few years old, and kind of spotty to begin with. These would have been either automated drones with dedicated AIs, or minuscule one-to-two-person scout ships, smaller than fighters. Either way, they'd have advanced sensor and communications equipment installed, along with the capability to make multiple jumps in sequence before requiring fuel or life support recharges. Most importantly at the moment, though, was that they didn't hide their identities. A moment later, our outside freaks all went white with static jamming as Omatsu's four ships and their attendants did their best to silence us. They wouldn't have bothered if this was someone working with them, which was all the confirmation we needed. But it also gave Grand Admiral Traitor the opportunity to spin the details in his direction. This was unexpected behavior among colleagues who had all trained with each other. Unexpected behavior in a serious situation was rarely a good thing. As a result, one of the scouts just blipped out star-jumping back with the news that something was afoot. Luckily, Paziana's XO had served on military vessels in the past and had been anticipating this. He'd made some preset recordings, which were now beamed over to the one remaining newcomer via lasercom, something no radio and HF jamming could prevent. Would it be enough? We hoped so since it included a quick video message from the Countess herself, shyly avowing that Paziana and its people were in her service and that the Grand Admiral was now an enemy of the Kajits. I played this recording over in Gunnery to see just how convincing it was. The Comatosa spoke softly, eyes off to one side, never looking into the camera pickup. The kids sat at her sides, Little Indita holding a patterned pillow before her like a beloved puppy. It was no sales pitch and hardly forceful, but it rang of the truth, which is what we needed more than anything else. I had no idea what other evidence or assurances Captain Giori might have been offering the remaining watcher, in addition to the recorded message, but he was likely talking live. I couldn't listen in for the same reason Omatsu couldn't so I just waited. It went on for quite a while. Another entrance cone formed then, just behind the scout that had stayed behind. Then another, and another. Then six more, one of these very large, startling, even awesome, in its unexpected arrival and imposing aspect. Hu Fi Chuvaj apparently pushed out of dry dock in the face of a family emergency. That mountain of metal and its attending vessels rolled up on this little piece of vacuum like a summer home, annoyed by the scramble in traffic, but ready to relax.
and warships had a special way of relaxing. What would Omatsu do? The Grand Admiral could also jump away, seeing the jig as being up. He could destroy us, figuring to cut his losses. He could destroy us and then jump away. It was a moment when many things could happen, and few of them good. It stretched on. I had fine-grained motion sensor data selected from the wide range of information that Paziana collected as a matter of course. There was far too much sensor data coming in for me to have it all open in separate displays. There were only spaces in my eye view for generalities. With regard to motion, I had a formula in place which, when all factors associated with the sensor targets were taken into account, provided a number that indicated nominal behavior. In the case of this sensor suite, that number was 3.0. This was different for every ship and situation. Right now, 3.0 meant little movement in the area of detection. When the shuttles were buzzing us, this number had wavered between 4 and 7. As we all just sat there, waiting for the Grand Admiral's decision, the movement number fluctuated. 3.0. 3.1, 3.3, That represented almost nothing, a change so small to the motion assessment sum it was within the range of statistical error factoring. And if we were docked in a nice, safe star system, that's exactly how I would have treated it. A wave of the hand opened the motion sensor panels. I isolated the source of the factoring. It was on the heavy coaster. I opened a live video feed, applied telescopics, then light amplification, and focused on a pulsing red box superimposed by the heads-up layer on the imagery. An armor plate had slid back, slowly, ever so slowly, like a moment of leaking time. A projection funnel for one of the ship's secondary pulse cannons eased out. When the focus cone of the gun just cleared the edge of the bay, it stopped. This weapon would normally be extended far out. It was fully articulated and could target nearly anything in a half-sphere or more around the starboard side of the vessel. Like this, though, peeking out like a goblin, it could only hit something perpendicular to the vessel's lateral beam. There was nothing there. We were still bouncing, moving, pirouetting, I replayed the feed, captured by sensors, winding back the minutes. It was possible to throw up value assessments on screen as this vid played out. And there it was, once, twice, thrice, during our bob and weave action since the newcomers had arrived, we were spot on to the warship's lateral beam. It could fire straight out as is. But with the outer plate already open, the gun could be fully deployed in seconds, in which case it could hit us anywhere. 
I could call up to the bridge and draw their attention to this. They'd make a decision about our movement. That, in turn, would force the enemy ship to make a decision. I tried to imagine the Grand Admiral working it out in his head. Piani wanted the Kajits alive because of all the incompetence and or bad luck that had been plaguing this operation. This was now looking to be impossible. Efficient action here and now would be an acceptable consolation prize. Oh, she'd be unhappy, but only until news came out that the old Camo's line was finally gone. And why else would we be acting so cagey if the Countess and her family weren't aboard? And if we'd just been trying to con him and they weren't aboard Paziana, then there was no loss in the attempt. He would have to declare his loyalty, and by extension that of the Kajit military assets, to Echo Malenta, the hungry goat, at some point anyway. So where was the value in waiting? Liko Omatsu was a commander, and he was about to make a command decision. Swipe down, swipe over, stab, in the air, right at the gun's focus cone. Stab! Hello, you shy gopher, coming out to play? Stab! Commit, commit, commit! Thousands of kilometers out, spread far from each other in a bubble arrangement, my darts tipped over, pointing back the way they'd come, and roared silently to life at maximum burn. DEW arrays tended to be somewhat fragile, even those built specifically for military applications, uh, comparatively speaking. They usually had armored blister shields, or were designed to be retractable, or, as in this case, both. I'd spotted the movement. So had the newcomers. Missiles flew out at the heavy cruiser from our real escort, ejected to ignite immediately, fed by high-velocity magnetic launchers on each ship. These weren't especially deadly to a well-armored foe, since they were hardly bigger or better than my own. Harassing ordnance designed to keep gunners busy and act as a warning to their commanders. From all four of Omatsu's ships, their point defense systems being fully automated, kinetic interposal bursting shells leapt out, intercepting missiles that were racing at them from supposed colleagues. To the average hands on all these ships, the galaxy must have simply gone mad, attacking your fellows, possibly your relatives, ships owned by the same family. What the flux was going on? Perhaps they weren't confused, but I watched that particle gun, and it was moving fast now. Other energy projectors were suddenly in action, too. Additional pieces of the automatic defenses of these vessels on both sides, firing at ordnance, fired at them, firing at armored hulls, firing to end a conflict or to just stay alive. But the gun meant for us was now fully deployed, behind bursting displays of largely ineffectual missile fire, behind a web of multi-spec lasers and plasma lance beams lighting up this patch of space that had no natural light of its own, save for what creaked over from light years away. This was it. Oh, brother, this was really it. And then 
there were explosions out further, a rain of light, showers of sparks as my own darts were targeted by Omatsu's ships, streaking in at 77 kilometers per second and climbing. Military sensors, targeting arrays, and defensive weaponry performed their functions, swatting away the discouraging Class C rockets launched by their enemy comrades who had, after all, no desire to kill their own, to defend against these and then my own missiles traveling from much further off and therefore traveling much, much faster. To a modern vessel of war, this was all possible to accomplish, even easy. To them, my darts were only scuff marks on the sky, spilled hope and fear and desperation. The four, controlled by the Grand Admiral, were shredding them like tissues in a storm, wiping them all away. All but one. Buried within that visual and EMR noise, the strike hardly registered more than a tiny spark, just a chip of light, a single snowflake in a howling blizzard. I was focused on it, ready for it, hoping against hope to see it. But when it came, it came too fast for human eyes to register. A military-grade particle gun was pointed directly at Paziana, its magnetic focus array adjusting for a short-range attack, and then the emitter cone on the end was just... gone. Hardly a major piece of damage, all things considered. An hour or three for a quality repair crew. But in that precise moment, that pivot point of fate, it was enough. It must have been enough for Omatsu, too. Because a moment later, in a watery shimmer of bending starlight, captured by wide-spectrum video and seen through the lens of heart-skipping relief, all four enemy ships were gone. round dozen of us sitting in the common room of Paziana, where there was a bit of space to stretch and some comfortable seats. No, we heard nothing about the assassination of our great and good Camo until word reached us through your family, Familian Cano de Santos. The shock of it was nearly overwhelming. But from a personal standpoint, this is even worse. He was right here when you jumped in. You could have gotten your answer straight from Liko Omatsu himself. Exactly how, demanded Commander Lunder Beliovar, the man we had to thank for our rescue, because we sure wouldn't have survived without him. Beliovar was not a small man, nor was he happy. His English was perfect, not even an accent to my ears. By smashing the command vessel of the most senior officer of Kajit security? Aside from that vid recording of the Kamatosa, which could have been faked, and the testimony of a commercial passenger hauler captain from another domain whom I had never met before, what evidence of treason did I have? No one is accusing you of anything, Commander, I assured, raising a hand in appeasement. He was really ticked off. The fact that he'd been the only one to bring up the suggestion of incompetence implied he either felt it justified or was rather used to being accused of it. Frankly, I thought we all owed him a kiss. Now we know where we stand, which is more information than before. 
How many ships and personnel have rallied in the Kamatosa's name? If the Grand Admiral has all the Black Starling Squadron, then it's less than half, came his grim reply. We have Hu Fi Chuvaj under our control, thank Allah. The others in the room echoed his divine gratitude. You were certainly the right man for the job, I complimented. On the scene and exactly who we needed. No, Familian Cano de Santos. Ah, uh, Fama was fine. He nodded appreciatively at this implied condescension. We were strangers, not friends. It was a compliment in his view. In mine, it was just faster to say. Famo, uh, please understand. I am actually an engineer by training. I was overseeing the refit when word of all this came through. There was no time to call in an officer more senior or experienced to take command when we received the Vernay's information packet. Our great patriarch, dead, murdered. The ship was set to receive software upgrades later this shift. On my own authority, which others may be justified in accusing me of exceeding, the upgrade was cancelled, or postponed, really, and I gave orders to launch. The escorting vessels present with us now were simply what was available at Bundinian Station. You performed your duty superbly, Commander Belivar, I assured, and everyone else echoed my words. Acting as you did, you saved the life of the Kamatosa and her children, to say nothing of ours. He just nodded in grim acceptance. He wasn't happy about any of this, which I rather liked. I wouldn't have trusted anyone who was grinning just then. You have no doubt noticed that messenger ships have been coming and going constantly since our arrival, Commander Bailiovar went on after an awkward moment or two. There's still a lot of confusion regarding the truth. As far as I was aware, Grand Admiral Omatsu was consolidating some forces at the homeworld, while other senior officers were doing the same among the three largest outsystem bases. I have received a report from some friends on the ground at Yamek, I guess we can call them our spies now, that at least one squadron from another noble family has arrived in Sayaku Prime, steaming in from the jump point. There are no details beyond that just yet, though I expect another courier soon. All of this, from our gaining the knowledge of Kamo Kajifuddin's murder to the Grand Admiral's betrayal, has happened within the last 36 hours. It's come as a blow. Liko Omatsu has been a personal friend and mentor for years. He never brought up any of this? Even vaguely? The man thought about it for a bit, looking at me, then shook his head. This sordid nonsense of peppering each other with small fire has been the closest we've physically been in, well, it must be seven months since I've seen him in person. The Admiral's been holding down Security HQ on the homeworld while I've been seeing to upgrades on our assets and other systems. Much can happen to change a man in seven months, Glautuk observed, but once again the commander shook his head, this time emphatically. Nothing could happen in so little time as to change the fundamental character of a man like Liku Omatsu. I'm telling you, if I hadn't seen it for myself, I would have called anyone a liar that described to me what just happened. I simply don't know how to proceed. Baliavar wasn't lying. He was having a very hard time processing this thing. A man that he deeply respected, 
had just demonstrated blatant treason in front of his eyes. His trust and admiration for the guy couldn't evaporate of an instant, but they were certainly dying, gasping like fish on land. I'm inclined to agree with the shieldman, I stated, pinning Commander Baleavar with my eyes so he'd consider my words, so he'd understand their implication. Perhaps someone got to him, found a weakness and squeezed. Maybe there's some scandal in his background, or maybe his family was threatened. But even assuming you're right and Omatsu couldn't have been turned in only seven months, then the obvious conclusion is that you never knew him at all. You thought you did, but he was a snake and he conned everyone. It sucks when that happens, believe me, I know. But this isn't your fault, it's his. Let him own that. He's earned it. The man had closed his eyes on my words, but he was definitely listening. The pained expression said it all. Finally, he looked up at those of us seated around the table. Then let it be like this. The Grand Admiral is now an enemy of the family. For what reason, I don't know, but neither do I care. There isn't a reason good enough. I will help hunt him down. He's broken his oath to the Kajit line and betrayed our trust. You can actually see him as an enemy? I clarified, pushing. I had to be sure, because we needed this guy, and a lot more besides. You can confront your old friend and simply, what, kill him? There's nothing simple about it, sir, the commander boomed, throwing me a nuclear glare. A man's duty isn't bound up in the simple or the easy. I will do what I must, and I will grieve for a friendship lost. But perhaps you'll pardon me if I choose to do the latter in private. That sounded close to a right answer. I nodded and let it drop. Glau jumped in then, switching tracks, covering personnel details regarding the safe escort and transfer of the Kajits to one of the military vessels. This was sensible since it would increase their safety manyfold, but I had gotten strangely proprietary over that family. This was irrational, and I knew it. It was arrogant, tinged with a deep-seated fear of irrelevance. It was me all over. The Vernet security forces would be meeting us anywhere between 48 and 72 hours after our scheduled arrival in Taviel's system, which was agreed upon as the rendezvous point. From there, we'd make plans. Elmond didn't know how many of the new vessels earmarked for the mining operation he could reassign for this, nor how many of those would even be available on such short notice. While we were all together, in a blue-sky phase of the conversation, I mentioned hiring mercenaries in the short term, but the commander shook his head. That would be a viable direction if we were first able to apply for a writ of confrontation from the College of Families. It would allow for legal military action against those who oppose us, action that would be free of most international laws. The Root Management Authority, for one, would not be a concern when fighting any families named in the writ. We could then hire mercenaries, free of legal encumbrance, and give them authority to carry the Kajit flag. 
they could attack the Grand Admiral or the ships of any others who are allied with this Piani Trisal person. Well, then we should apply for that writ immediately, I affirmed. If our enemies have done so, through one of the family heads opposing us, they may attack whenever they like. But we are hampered in this respect because only a family patriarch can do such a thing, he stated. Well, these are special circumstances, surely. In the Empire, one could say they are commonplace. Barely a year goes by when one family or another isn't at odds. Well, then let's get the title of Camo conferred upon Beeuler as soon as possible. Then we can move forward. The commander and the others all looked serious and a bit confused upon this suggestion. Famo, please understand... The title of Kamo is distinct from the office of patriarch. The Kajit elders must vote upon any such appointment, and we cannot be sure just how many of those elders will be backing the Grand Admiral in this. I sat back, a bit stunned. It was a snare. Years in the making, even beautiful in a way. I was seeing the circular quality of the situation for the first time. Lady Tressal had crafted a nice, tight operation designed to wrest any and all power and influence from this branch of the Kajit family. By killing Mr. Fausel, she'd freed up the office and title of patriarch. By killing the entire family, she would have also freed up the rank and title of Kamo. Her cronies wanted the one because that meant money and power flowing through their hands. But she wanted the latter more than anything else, because that would allow her to rise. Indeed, the deals she'd been making in the shadows may well have been framed that way from the start. Follow me, and I'll open up the Kajit purse strings for you. In exchange, you will give the title of Count to the family member of my choice. Echo Malenta, if Elmond was right. I now had no doubt she'd been stringing that guy along all this time. She'd marry him, lightly squeeze the College of Families for a liberal and lasting grant of title, and suddenly she'd be a countess. In a year or two, dopey Camo Malenta would be out on his ear, and she'd be ready for another step up. Technically, and by default, Glau offered for the sake of context, the Kamotosa is currently the interpatria of the Kajits. Um, something like a regent, you could say. In normal circumstances, this is merely a legal formality, lasting only until a respected male of the Kajit line can be earmarked for the position. This person will have been chosen and voted upon by the senior members of the family. Interpatria is a position usually held for a few days at the most. Our enemies will no doubt already be protesting the legal irregularities of our situation to the elders, the college, the throne, and any who will listen. Our beloved Kamatosa has never had anything to do with politics or negotiation. Most of the Kajit allies have not even met her. The Dekamo has yet to ascend to his father's noble title and won't be of legal age to apply for the position of patriarch for many years. 
he who next wins the role of patriarch will be closely aligned with Lady Tressel. Of that we can be sure. If the, what'd you say, interpatria? If the interpatria has the power of the patriarch, however temporary that usually is, then that person, the comatosa in this case, must be able to make an application for this writ of confrontation to the College of Families. I was sorting through this logically, or trying to, and waited for the reply. I only got more confused stares. I don't think I've ever heard of it being done before, was the only reply, and this from Commander Baleovar. He was trying to see my line of thought through a morass of custom and tradition. Finally, though, he rallied his point with, Even if it were technically within the law, such a violation of accepted behavior would almost certainly cause them to deny the writ. But not immediately, Glau countered after a beat, pondered really. Doing this would add weight to the argument we are trying to make. No, the good lady Tressal and her toadies may cry foul, but the college would have something to chew over, to debate. The emperor as well. We must remember that they are looking for reasons not to get involved. This would give them something they could use to delay action, and while we await their judgment... The fight can proceed as if we are under the naive assumption that the writ will be granted. There may be some penalties levied at a later time should the vote go against us, but nothing so dramatic or dangerous as being declared renegades and pirates. This seemed to make a dent, but Baleavar wasn't done. Our enemies have their allies, as you say, some of whom sit upon the college board. We must assume they will attempt to expedite a denial of the application. Should that happen, we will be without legal protection. Pressing the fight at that point could, as you point out, good shieldman, result in us being branded as criminals. The Emperor, or the College of Families, will then be forced to act. But isn't that something we want? I asked. Expose this to the light? Most of them don't even know what's going on, I'll bet. Those are allies worth making, if we can. Not necessarily, the commander countered. As you must know, there are many who would like to see Augustine out of power. If he was forced to move on this, the college would have to as well, but only some of them would do so in his support or ours. We have enemies there, and so does he. That would then become the line in the sand, as it were. All-out civil war. The emperor knows this, so he will drag his feet, possibly forever. He will not attempt to overturn or influence any judgment by the college that does not harm him personally or weaken the power of the throne. Which is something Lady Tressal has probably thought of, too, I opined, tapping my front teeth with a stylus thinking and running through the loops of this thing. It was a plan only the noble-born could formulate, not only because of its deviousness, but because only the idle rich and powerful had the kind of time and connections to put such a gamble together. And it was a gamble. The situation may not have been looking pretty for us at the moment, 
but that did not make it a sure thing for them. Once again, the others in the room watched and waited. It sounds like submitting a writ of confrontation through the Countess is our first step, I spoke, clarifying all this for myself. I mean, assuming she's good with it. At this, I looked to Glautic, but he gave a neutral shrug. We were making all sorts of plans for a woman who may have had some of her own. I will, of course, submit any suggestions that we assemble to the Kamatosa for her approval. As I say, she is not a political person and may wish to place these choices in the hands of trusted others, but that is a conversation yet to be had. Understand me then, gentlemen, at the moment I am not speaking for her, no one is. Put that way, the only reasonable response was to nod in agreement, which all of us did. Assuming the Countess agrees, then, I offered, after a few moments of awkwardness, maybe we should look around for friends of our own, search for people who are doing pretty good just the way things are, not how they may end up if the political and financial landscape in this region were to change. We look for families, businesses, and those segments of the general public that want stability. Pound the patriotic drum as hard as we can. You know, the integrity of the empires at stake, protect the status quo, don't overturn apple carts, that sort of thing. And if there's someone out there who actively hates Lady Trisal or her allies the way we do, they get extra attention. We might want to think about assembling some foreign pressure, too, from outside the Empire. The time for that last part, the commander reasoned, was long ago. The late Kamo would agree with you if he could, I replied. It's why he went to the Alliance. He had a scheme to maintain his money and connections while being out of reach from people and pressures that have since become well known to the rest of us. He failed, but there are nobles who must have liked him, even if they couldn't help. And maybe some of them are afraid of getting the same treatment from Lady Trisal as the Kamo did. Possibly, Glau agreed, but how many of them will feel comfortable backing this family while it is without a clear leader? I have no idea, but we can't fight without people to watch our backs. Piani Trisal has far more bootlegs than we currently have allies. Elmond Vernes Panden did not authorize me to assist you just to lose this thing out of hand. Direct conflict will mean exactly that if we don't work with other power bases. Is this not what we've been talking about? asked the commander, frankly. To determine if we can and are truly going to war. That decision was made for us by the good lady. We're determining what the war will look like. It will be ugly, Glautic stated. How could it not be so? Our beloved Kamo is dead from one woman's ambition. We are heartbroken and blinded with rage. Al-Shatan will walk the stars. My rig came back with a translation of devil for that word. He always has, Commander Beliavar replied darkly. Alongside everyone, everywhere. Unwilling to let metaphysics dominate the day, I stood up then and looked around at the men in that room, one by one, even the lesser officers, because, though they'd been given no leave to speak, 
they at least had ears. The numbers are against us, so we need numbers. Lady Trasal is smart, so we need to be smart. She isn't blind with any sort of rage, so we can't be either. Famo, you can't expect us to ignore our emotions in this, Captain Giori spoke up. His tone was almost pleading. Commander, we're not fighting someone who plays fair, I answered, starting toward the companionway outside, because I had to suppress the sudden and totally irrational urge to hit the man. I don't intend to either. But I stopped at the hatch of the common room when he responded to this declaration. There are rules to all this, Famo, to war, laws that limit the impact and spread of it, so as not to, as you say, threaten the integrity of the Empire. Do you even know what those limits are? Not in the least, and if that doesn't frighten our enemies yet, it soon will. It'll scare us all before we're through, gentlemen. This I guarantee. I walked out then before there were any more questions, but even if there had been, it wouldn't have mattered, because their confusion didn't matter, nor did their hesitation. All that mattered was that we were in mid-jump, heading to a friendly, well-supplied, and well-defended starbase. Burn Giori had been right to ask, because if there were indeed customs and laws in place designed to keep a crazy quilt of fiefdoms and egos from fracturing and flying apart, I surely didn't know about them. I didn't know what I could do or what I couldn't. I only knew that I never felt more free in my entire life. You have been listening to All He Surveys, Volume 1, a Star Drifter novel written and read by David Collins Rivera. This story is copyright 2022 by David Collins Rivera and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 international license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. The Star Drifter theme is a piece called i by Trunks and can be found on SoundCloud.com. The All He Surveys theme is a piece called Blossom by Edward Malov and is licensed through tribeofnoise.com. This story is a work of fiction and is not based upon nor meant to portray any person living or dead nor any particular place or situation. Any similarities to such are purely coincidental. You can contact me at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail. You can also check out my site, davidcollinsrivera.com, where you'll find everything Star Drifter, including more audio novels and stories, the Star Drifter tabletop role-playing game, podcasts, newsletters, and more. Stop by, won't you, and drop me a line. Thank you for listening. Take care. <laughs>